This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 9th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. It was 235 years ago today that the field of economics was truly born. The Wealth of Nations, the great work by moral philosopher Adam Smith, set the stage for social sciences in the centuries that followed. Russ Roberts, a professor of economics at George Mason University and advisor to Cato's Center for Trade Policy Studies, talks about Adam Smith and his important book. This is the first of a two-part interview. I think it's important to put the book in in perspective in a couple of ways. One is this was his second big book. People mainly know of The Wealth of Nations. His first big book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which he wrote before The Wealth of Nations and revised it all through his life. And the last revision came out after The Wealth of Nations. So The Wealth of Nations is kind of bracketed by Smith's other book. The other perspective, I think, to think about is that there were lots of people thinking about the issues that Smith was concerned about, the role of self-interest, economic activity, where wealth came from, the questions that Smith addresses in throughout his, his work. His was the first attempt, I would say, to attack those questions like an economist. And, you know, Smith gets credit for being the, the, the father of modern economics or wrote the first economics book. He didn't. There were many people before him who wrote on the topics that he wrote about. What, to me, makes his book and his work so exciting and, and still relevant today is that he was the first person, to my knowledge, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this time, but to my knowledge, he's the first person who wrote like an economist. He thought like an economist. He used what we still call the economic way of thinking. He was interested in trade-offs. He was interested in incentives. He understood uh, what we now call market forces. And that is really what makes the book and, and his work so distinctive. You mentioned the theory of moral sentiments uh, a moment ago uh, and that it was the wealth of nations was bracketed by that book. Uh, how did the revisions uh, that went into the theory of moral sentiments. Well, first of all, describe the theory of moral sentiments. I know that uh, when we've talked before that he turned the idea of morality kind of on its head, and it wasn't uh, a do this, do that sort of book. It was a more of why is it that we behave this way, and, and why, do we, why do we govern our, our social interactions in particular manners? Well, I always like to emphasize the theory of moral sentiments when I talk about the wealth of nations because I think a lot of people – misunderstand Smith, the caricature Smith is this uh, the father of selfishness, the, the father of self-interest. Uh, certainly Smith understood that people were primarily self-interested and much of the wealth of nations is about those, uh, the, the implications of that for both behavior and public policy. But the reason the theory of moral sentiments is important is that it's a, a very rich picture of how we behave. It's a rich picture of what motivates human beings, not just money, not just greed, not just what we would call self-interest, but pride, shame, honor, prudence, benevolence. These were the things Smith was concerned about, and of course, we're all concerned about those things ourselves. It's a part of the; those are the emotions and character of of human beings that are still inevitably part of the human condition. So, did did theory of moral sentiments revisions were they uh, impacted by what what came out of the Wealth of Nations? I don't see it that way. I'm not an expert on the different editions. <clears throat> I, I think what's more important is to think about the two books as a whole 
in how Smith saw the world. The theory of moral sentiments is mostly about how we interact with people who are near and dear to us, as well as some who are far away from us. Uh, but mainly it's about how do we care and why do we care about what our peers think of us, our loved ones, our friends? How do we react to their foibles and their successes? The Wealth of Nations is about how we interact with strangers. It's about how we deal with commerce. It's about how we deal with politicians and how they deal with us. It is about the world of business. It is about the world of behavior writ large. And but what I want to emphasize, though, is that many of the themes uh, that we think of as being in, say, the Wealth of Nations are in the theory of moral sentiments and vice versa. So, for example, uh, we all think of the invisible hand when we think of the, th of the Wealth of Nations, which is for a modern economist, a shorthand way for talking about the complex market forces that interact with each other, uh, that one's individual decisions have, when aggregated in a market setting, have co complex and interesting implications, often beneficial, not always, but often beneficial. That theme is also in the theory of moral sentiments. He has invisible hand arguments in there, what we would call invisible hand arguments, about how our behaviors, not mediated by prices, but mediated by shame, or pride or honor cause us to do the right thing. And Smith was really interested in many ways with the harmony of both our social system and our economic so-called commercial systems. That would be one point. The other point I'd make is that Smith also understood the temptations of power and the, the challenges of, of doing the right thing even, even when you uh, intend to do the right thing, you don't always do so. And so in both books, there are examples of uh, people overreaching either through lack of knowledge or bad incentives to do the wrong thing. And again, I think Smith was aware of, of that throughout his, all of his work. One of the most famous uh, sections of uh, The Wealth of Nations is the pin factory. And as we've talked before, uh, he drew fairly narrow conclusions from that example. But what you can conclude uh, from that uh, with subsequent work in economics is is far broader than that. Yeah, I, I teach a, a seminar on on Smith's ideas uh, to uh, here at George Mason, and uh, we one of our topics is divisional labor, specialization, and trade. And I think we've spent six lectures on it so far. So yeah, you can get a lot out of it if you look deeply. It's actually a relatively short discussion of in Smith of the divisional labor, but it is a discussion that with the pin factory and the implications of the pin factory that have influenced lots of writers and I think its influence and, and insights are extremely relevant today. What Smith understood, he looked around him, he saw that there were people just as there are today <clears throat> who were desperately poor living in, in subsistence conditions and that yet at the same time there were people around him, the the bourgeoisie, the growing bourgeoisie of England, uh, the gentleman class and others who lived extraordinarily better lives. And he was, as we all are, interested in why that was. One of the things he noticed was how specialized life was for a civilized person and how unspecialized and self-sufficient it was for a desperately poor person. And he correctly drew the lesson that something was going on there that allowed a person to have command over so much material well-being 
that he'd be totally incapable of producing on his own, yet by specializing, he could create it through trade. He could have access to it through trade. And of course, that happens because everyone's doing the same thing. Lots of people are specializing at the same time. It's not specialization per se. It's specialization within a system where other people are specializing. And because of trade, specialization leads you to wealth. And that remains for me the deepest and most important idea uh, behind our standard of living today and um, why some nations are rich and some are poor. And yet, uh, for the hundreds of years of work in economics, that particular lesson still uh, doesn't have very deep roots, doesn't have a very strong roots. No, and I think that's a, that's a, a tragedy. Uh, it's an indictment of economics education to some extent. Uh, I find it fascinating how little time we spend in most economics classes, not mine, but in most economics classes and even in mine before I thought about it enough, how much, how little time we spend on our standard of living and why it is what it is. Um, the other point I would make is that David Ricardo, uh, a successor of Smith's, in 1817 published a book with the idea embedded deeply within it, it, in a little corner called Comparative Advantage, which is about the virtues of trade when we're different. And that's an extremely important idea. Uh, it's very insightful and, and, and non-obvious, as many have pointed out. But Smith's insights into trade are perhaps more important because what Smith understood, his phrase that gets repeated sometimes is, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. The way I understand that is, is that if you trade with a very small group of people rather than a wide group of people, if you trade narrowly, there's limits on how much you can specialize. If you trade widely enough, the opportunity to add technology and capital and machinery and knowledge to the production process can totally transform it. That can never happen with a small group. The 100 most talented people in the world living in the most resource-rich place in the world will always be desperately poor. To achieve the level of standard of living that we have in the world today for the developed nations and those of us who do well within them requires much larger trading opportunities. So R Ricardo was important, but I think what Smith understood and what he gives us access to is the dynamism of growth, the opportunity to continue to innovate technologically and get to a higher and higher standard of living. How far did Smith take that particular insight? Because for some reason, I'm thinking that in The Wealth of Nations, he pretty much drew the line at you know a, an organization that's functioning within four walls. Well, I, I don't know how how well he understood it then compared to how well some understand it today. I think the fact that he starts the book with it shows that he understood it was it was front and center. And I think when you think about his insights into trade generally, he clearly understood that trade was an extraordinary uh, creator of wealth. I think it's very important to contrast Smith's ideas with what were the prevalent ideas of the day, which were that gold was what or silver is how you got rich um that that money accumulating money was was a sign of wealth and it's not uh it can be of course obviously each one of us has our own particular command of goods and services that's dependent on how much money we have but at the national level the idea that we should pursue um, uh, say exports as a way of accumulating gold which was his the the, the error of his day which is called mercantilism that the, the the illogic of that approach 
remains a problem today. People still confuse monetary uh, phenomena with real phenomena. So just to take an example, a lot of times you'll hear people say it's important to buy local because it keeps all the money local and therefore the, the wealth stays local. And that's a total fallacy. If you buy locally with a small enough group, uh, we all agree to do it together, we'll all be desperately poor because we won't be able to leverage the Smithian division of labor that was that is so powerful. Yes, all the money will stay in our community, but it won't buy very much. What we care about is our access to goods and services, not the physical pieces of paper that we accumulate. And Smith's understanding of that was so important and really set, I believe, the, the economics profession on the correct path of understanding that money is fundamentally a veil can have destructive effects when it's poorly managed by personal or state-level activity, but he really understood that it's not money that counts, it's stuff. Russ Roberts is an advisor to the Cato Institute Center for Trade Policy Studies and professor of economics at George Mason University. You can read more about Adam Smith and the foundations of economics at cato.org.